and I drop it. Just pray with me, would you? I know Mark has generously prayed for me, but I want to pray. And <clears throat> thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you, Father, for the word. Thank you, Lord, for the word made flesh. Thank you, Father, for sharing yourself, opening yourself up to us that we should know you. Father, we simply want to be open-hearted this morning to receive what you've already been um, putting into our own spirit. And Lord, we want to be open to hear and to receive what it is that you want to say. So we give you thanks in that wonderful name. Thank you. Amen. Amen. It's a long while since I've stood here. <laughs> Have you noticed how it is that great love finds us? It's not us that finds the love. And it's often in times when we ourselves are in moments of, or seasons of real vulnerability. It may be when we're in... Um, depression or anxiety or bereavement or when we hit a period of uh, ill health or we find ourselves seemingly pushed up against a wall, we don't feel like we're making any kind of breakthrough. And it's in times like that that this great love of God breaks in, finds us, and we realised, actually, we had absolutely nothing to do with it. And I think it's that quality of love that I want to try and reach into uh, this morning. And um, in order to be able to help us kind of access it, I want to tell you uh, a story, or a bit of a story, uh, from my own life. Um, it was, if I go right, right back to days uh, now in the dim, distant, misty past, um, I was 14 years old and I was at a church 
youth group and somebody came along one weekend uh, who talked about uh, sin, he talked about the cross, he talked about forgiveness and as a 14 year old I realised that he was speaking to me and at that point I had, I felt I needed to respond and so uh, I let him pray with me and that was the point at which I could say that somehow I was making a decision for Christ. Over the coming five years, my Christian experience was bumpy, it was up and down, and I have to say that although I'd made a decision back then, my knowledge of God was something, was a, a bit of a vacuum, really. And I found myself questioning, I found myself uh, seriously asking whether or not whatever I'd said back then had any substance to it. Now I was actually convinced that, uh, and this was something that grew over time, I was convinced that this so-called gospel that we talk about, I was convinced that it was true. But somehow it didn't feel true for me. Run the reel forward a few years to when I was 19 and uh, a friend and I had decided that we were going to travel a bit uh, in Europe and we'd headed off onto the continent down through Germany. Um, we got to a little place in southern Germany in the Black Forest area called Freiburg and uh, we stayed there for a, a night or so and something had been building in me. Um, you know how you have, you have your life that you live in the outside world but there's also stuff that's going on in here that sometimes it's really difficult to try and describe what that is. And the only thing that I could really describe about what was going on inside me was that I was getting just more and more desperate. It was, it, it was so tangible, it was physical. I felt in my gut a sense of desperation because this God that I knew was out there did not somehow find a place of contact <coughs> in me. It was frustrating the hell out of me. I was absolutely uh, like this. And there was a particular night while we were in, uh, in Freiburg when I remember crying, literally, out to God and saying, if you don't fill this hole, something is just going to come apart. The following day, uh, my friend and I, we carried on, we were, we were hitchhiking and we'd we got a plan, we were going to go down to Geneva in Switzerland. And uh, we had a friend there who, um, who was kind enough to let us stay over with them. And for some reason, and I can't think why, but for some reason, I was on my own in the flat 
that following night. This feeling of desperation, although it had somehow subsided, it was still there. And if I can just picture for you the interior of this uh, room that I was in. It was in the uh, living room. I can remember there was a dark, dark stained parquet floor, a little bit darker than the floor that we're standing on right now. Um, it was night time. The city lights were on outside the, the window. Uh, I was sitting at a square dining room table. There was a small sofa over here to the right-hand side, and next to it was a bookcase. I got up and I went over to the bookcase, and I picked off the shelf a Bible. And I hadn't read the Bible for... I can't remember how long. Uh, and I did that thing that I would never counsel anybody to do, <coughs> just to open it and start reading. I sat down at this square dining room table and I just started reading where the page had fallen open. And this is what I read. And this is where we come in at Colossians 1. I'm going to start at verse 15 and I'm going to read through to verse 20. So, try and put these two things together now. Here was I in this state of hunger and desperation for God. God was somehow, I knew that God was real, but it was somewhere out there. And my point of contact at this moment did not exist. And then I read this. And he, the Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. I'll come back to my personal journey a little, in a little while, but maybe if I can just call up for you a couple of parallel passages to that one that we just read. This is from John 1. I want us to see that 
scripture has a way of laying a trail that what we find in one place we find in another. So just catch this from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, face to face with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's John 1. Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Uh, permission to cheer, honestly. <laughs> honestly, this stuff is just incredible. The backdrop to this is God's eternal and abiding passion for mankind. God's desire from the very beginning has been this face-to-face -face relationship with humanity. There's that scripture, isn't there, in uh, that, that lovely passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. And in the end, he says this. Um, he says, Now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. I will know, even as I am fully known. Now, isn't that an amazing expression of the heart and desire of God for every single human being? Face-to-face -face relationship, full, unrestrained knowledge, mutual knowledge, God and us. Now this, this is the mystery, if you like. This is the outrageous Christian vision. This is what those apostolic fathers, from the beginning then, were grappling with to try and capture the intensity and the wonder of what it is that this gospel means. It's given us peerless writings like this. It's also produced 
a, dare I say it, a subversive counterculture that we call the church that gives expression to the kingdom life of people in relationship with this amazing Christ through whom we know the Father. It's helped us to reframe the religious mind. If you think, if, let's just have a look at this for a minute. The beginning of that passage, he is the, the image of the invisible God. When we say God, what we're saying is Father, Son and Spirit. We're saying something about the nature of Godhead, which isn't just a bunch of fixtures. It's actually about a dynamic relationship that has preceded everything that we see and touch and handle. This is the nature of God. It is this relationship that's pre-existed all things. And what we have done as human beings, we've tried to paint a face on God. And we have badly missed it, honestly. Paul was writing when he wrote to this church in Colossae. He was writing to a bunch of people who basically come from a completely pagan culture with their array of gods on whom they had projected their own fickleness, their own ego, their own disinterest, their own futility, you name it, what they had done was created God in their own image. But here, we hear God saying about a man, he is the image of the invisible God. So God was placing himself, if I can say it like this, painting himself on the face of a man. It is, it is amazing. It's why Jesus could confidently say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. He was talking the language of Trinity. He was saying that the Godhead has arrived in flesh here on the earth, walking about, that we can see and we can touch and we can handle and we can understand. It goes on, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Remember that bit I read in... Oh, I haven't read it yet. Let's go back. Genesis. You do. You know this. You could probably recite it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God 
was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God created. The Spirit was, when I say God, it's a summary. The Father, the Spirit moving, the Word of God coming forth and light coming. This was an operation, this trinity of life, projecting itself out into a created order that didn't exist before. Somehow God was taking of his own essence and saying, let it be, let it find an expression in a whole new dimension outside of God himself. This was a relationship whose beauty is beyond words. Just think about that for a moment. Each, each part, each member of the Godhead, serving the other, submitting to the other, yielding to the other, promoting the other, preferring the other. What we have is this, this interdependent relationship, this individual union and it was out of this womb that creation came into being. God was finding something outside of himself that would find expression in this mutuality, this life, this togethering, this wonderful, wonderful dynamic, this flowing of life and love that existed in the Godhead that God was putting out there into creation. For by him all things were created. All things have been created through him, for Christ, and for him. This is great, great news. God has got a plan for the creation. And the plan is to sum up everything in him. So everything finds its place, everything finds its rest, everything finds its fulfilment, everything finds its harmony, everything becomes reintegrated into itself in the Christ. Why worry? <laughs> now then, don't mistake, don't, please, 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 don't misunderstand me. When we look around and we see things as they are, I don't know about you, but I feel like tearing my hair out at times. I, I look at it and I think, oh God, where on earth is all this going? You know, I mean, just over this last weekend and the, all the news about what's going on in northern Syria and, and all, all the, the cacophony of noise, the friction, the uh, division that we see around us. You wonder, how on earth, how on earth is it possible for all of that ever to find some kind of resolve? Now, I've, I believe two things. I believe, one, 
that God himself has not abandoned this. God himself has an interest in all of this because he is invested in it. The other thing which I believe, which is relevant to now, and it's been expressed in some ways already this morning, that we have a part to play. That we are not just spectators, but we are those who have come under actively, consciously, and with intent, we have come under this government of God. So we have a responsibility. We have something that can find expression through us, which is showing a different way. So we're not just to stand by, wring our hands in despair, but actually to say, no, there is something different, there is something better, and it begins here. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> in him, all things hold together. Uh, it talks in that bit I read from Hebrews that he upholds all things by the word of his power. I think that's what it said anyway. It says it somewhere. What it means is that the very atoms... All living things, the solar system, the cosmos, everything that's not only seen but what's unseen is held together and is sustained by him. That is phenomenal. We, we, you know, we, don't, we don't pause to think about it. But if he was to withdraw his breath, everything would just collapse, it would dis disappear. Every living thing is breathing the air that Christ breathes. The oxygen of God is what sustains all living things. Now, you, okay, I know you might say to me, well, but yeah, oxygen's a chemical, and you know, but do you hear what I'm saying? That the divine breath is what is sustaining all things. Paul says, doesn't he, Acts 17, in him we live and move and we have our being. Now this is controversial, but that isn't just the Christians. Everything is sustained by him. I think there's opportunity here for a bit of reverence in, th in this sense of being able to look to look at ourselves to look at the people around us to look at the world that we live in to look at the planet and recognise God has got an investment in all of this how can I how dare I treat that with anything less than the reverence that that calls upon. And you, uh, I'll leave you to think about the, the implications of that, but it's not just about 
uh, us nice people. It's about the poor. It's about the weak. It's about the unlovely. Jesus, he says, if, if you do it to the least of one of these, you do it to me. I, I believe he meant that, that he is in the poor, the weak, the unlovely. I had a fairly dramatic experience a couple of years ago when I found myself, um, many of you will know this story, um, but I was in the spinal injuries unit in uh, Wakefield for four months. Uh, that was my village. And I was amongst a group of people who, naturally speaking, I would never have found myself with. Uh, most people were not like me, didn't share my background, my uh, whatever. And yet we were forced together by common circumstance. We had, uh, you know, one thing in common. We'd all have a fairly catastrophic injury. Um, and it was when I was at my most helpless, immediately after I'd come out of this operation to fix my um, injury, literally when I couldn't move, um, it was then when I discovered that this God that we've been speaking about, this God in whom the whole of creation originated, this unending, abiding, relentless love was what had given birth to the all things, including me. And I found myself there in that state of vulnerability, recognising that God had included me. That was what saved me from going into despair. At that time, as you can imagine, I didn't know where this was going to end up. I thought I might be paralysed from the neck downwards for the rest of my life. That is not a happy prospect. But God met me in that condition and that is where I found the reality of this love that exists within the life of God had included me. A few weeks later, this is when I was now in rehab, when I found myself at the spinal injuries unit I was looking at people, the people around me, the people who I was sharing a room with, the people I was sharing a meal table with, the people who I would meet, um, wheeling themselves around in, in, their, um, in their wheelchairs. I'd been given new eyes. These people were no different because the love of God had included them as well. And who was I to say, you're excluded? Who was I to say, I'm different from you? Man, it was a wake-up. And I had to recognise that for that period of those few months, I was experiencing something of the depth of what God has already done in the life of this humankind that he has this eternal and abiding passion for. My fingers still don't work fully. 
This little passage basically breaks into two. So he's, he's given us, or tried the best he can, bless him, to present this Christ as being the source and origin of all things. It's, it was through him, it was for him, that's where it's all headed. And now he comes out with this. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. When I read this again, uh, you know, you, you have that thing sometimes where you, you hear the scripture saying one thing and then you look around and you think, hold on a minute, these two things don't connect. Because I don't know about you, but um, do you, anybody else here like maps? John, I know you do. And if you, um, you recognise the little symbols that you get on an ordnance survey map, sometimes you will see a little cross swords and it's the symbol for the site of a battlefield. And when I read this again, I thought to myself, the church ought to have one of these on it, because frankly, the church as we've known it, going back hundreds of years, has been a battlefield. And I'm thinking, Jesus, how, on, how in the world does that represent you? You know, the church has been, either because of you know, power struggle or because of personality conflict or, heaven forbid, argument about this uh, you know, difference of opinion about the meaning to the degree that we fall out over it and we go one way and somebody goes the other. I mean, it's a travesty. And yet, Jesus owns the church. He says, I am the head of the church, his body. Now, if we go back and we say, all right, he is the source, the beginning, the Godhead, this self-giving, unending, never-failing love of God. Surely, that has got to be the hallmark of the church. That's, that's the DNA that we have inherited. Surely, this representation, the battlefield representation of the church, that is not it. So, folks, we've got to start showing the world a different kind of church. What, the, what it tells me is that church fundamentally is a relational community. You know, we may have our badges and we may have our, you know, our particular affiliations and we may have this, that and the other. We may have our style, we may sing our certain songs, we may do certain things. But underneath it all is this. We are a people to represent the true nature of Christ, which means fundamentally that we love one another, we serve one another, 
in the same way, Father, Son and Spirit do exactly the same. That same self-giving, never giving up, ever pressing forward love for one another. And it, I'm not, I don't mean just the people in this room. I mean wherever we encounter a believer. That is our call, to put this God, this wonderful Godhead, the Father, Son and Spirit, on display. It says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. <laughs> I, I, don't, I think, um, to me, that were, it was the Father's good pleasure. It's a bit like you're attending a dinner party, isn't it? It's my, it's my pleasure to... Uh, um, but when you kind of unwrap that a little bit, can you just imagine the unrestrained joy of God? It was his pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I, I sometimes go back to, you know when uh, Jesus comes to the river and he's, he says to John, I want to be baptised by you, and it's almost as if the father can't stand it any longer and tears, you know, the, te tears things out between heaven and earth and, and he just, it's like, this, this is my beloved son. He cannot restrain himself. It was the, the, it was the God's good pleasure to present all the fullness in him. How much joy did God take in embodying in human form? And what that is showing us is something quite, quite amazing, outstanding, almost unknowable. God does not hate humanity. God is not put off by humanity. He actually came and occupied human form. The human being, let it be said, is compatible with the nature of God. We have it there. It has walked about in the earth. God and humanity are okay. We are totally compatible with God permanently. How much does God love the human race? Don't expect you to answer the question, I'm just putting it out there. But if he could decide to come and make his home in the person of a human being. There's a little word in there, it was his pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And that word, fullness, I suppose there's all kinds of um, ways in which we could understand that. You know, we could understand it as basically being, well, God took everything that was in, I hate to say himself, because it kind of makes God a, per, you know, a, a male, male individual. But actually we've been talking about this three-in-oneness. Uh, you know, Kate and I, we have to resort to this language of themselves, it kind of messes with you, doesn't it? But um, So we think about the fullness that, that God themselves were, was happy 
to come and fill a human being with himself. And actually, we'll see more of this as we go through Colossians. But there was a bit in, um, it's in the Passion Translation, which I know you like, Mark, uh, and it's in one of the footnotes. Uh, and I'll read it to you. He simply says, this includes, um, I like that because it suggests there's also more, but he said, this includes all the fullness of God, the fullness of his, the fullness of his plan for our lives, and the full image of God being restored into us. That's good, isn't it? So somewhere in that word fullness, there's all that lot. So I'll leave you to unpick it. But actually, there's something that God is saying about us as well as about themselves when he talks about the fullness. We know, don't we? But I don't think we fully grasp that when God in the beginning said, let us make man, humankind, in our own image, he was saying something about humanity being capable of reflecting that true nature of God and what he's done in Christ. For whatever got messed up, what he's done is to restore it. I'm nearly through. And it says, verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's pretty big, isn't it, eh? I mean, we, we have, a bit like that preacher did when I, back when I was 14, he's made the issue sin. And I'm convinced that it's a lot bigger than that, that this gospel is so, so, so much more than sin. Sin was a bump in the road. But God has got a purpose, which is to see everything that has issued out of this incredible relationship within the Godhead. God has the desire to bring all of that to its fullness, somehow, through the Christ. Don't ask me how, I don't know. I've even given up trying to tell you what happened at the cross. I don't know. I'm in good company. C.S. Lewis said the same thing. But what I do know is what it did. It paved the way for the all things, seen and unseen, to be brought into harmony in the Christ. This little word, reconciled, it simply means something to fold in together. So whatever was kind of fragmented, whatever was broken, whatever was misshapen, it's about something being brought back into where it properly belonged. Brought back into its place of true worth. Now, that is you and it's me and it's the person next door and the person on the bus or in the shop or wherever it is. But God is reconciling all things to himself. This gospel, I don't know about you, but the more I get into this, the more I think, God, I, am, I just am not capable of even grasping it. If we think we can reduce this gospel to a formula, then we have done it a massive, massive disservice. We may know the beginning, but we certainly don't know where this is all ending up. I want to 
I want you to come back with me to that um, parquet floor room in Geneva. And as I sat at that table, and as I read this passage, which we've just read, uh, you can believe it, can't you? At this point, I was absolutely in shreds. Because... I found myself exposed to this humbling, breathtaking, all-embracing, initiative-taking love of God that had found me. I saw it in the face of a man. I saw it in the face of the sun. And for me, the God who was out there, who I had no contact with, suddenly I found had embraced me. I was gazing at the Father's pride and joy. And when I looked at his face, I saw my own That was life-changing for me. I'd, in fact, I'd, I probably don't want to say anymore, but that was the beginning of when I discovered how much and what lengths God had gone to to reach out to you and to me and a creation that is absolutely on tiptoe waiting for that revelation. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you. Oh, would I heck? Father. Mm. Yeah, Father, <laughs> we do just uh, stand amazed. Um, we are in awe, seriously. Lord, we, we recognize we just don't have the, uh, oh, to be able to comprehend what it is that you've done, who you are, what you're like, who we are, what we're like, all because of this wonder of the Christ. Father, I, I would dare to ask that you'd illuminate our heart, our spirit, to understand, to, by revelation, to see more fully what is the, the length, the depth, the height, the breadth of your love for us, your love for the world, your love for creation. 
Lord, give us insight, please. And Father, not only that we may treasure it, but Lord, we can be channels for it. Father, we, we long to be available. We long to say, God, please, would you enable us to walk in the earth as people that have been united, we've been brought into union in you. Father, help us to walk that out. God, we can only do it by your grace. But we thank you for grace. We, oh, we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. Oh, Father, thank you. Lord, we just say thank you. God, I want to pray for my friends. I want to pray, that, Father, as we, uh, as we leave here, um, I want to thank you that you go with us and in us. I want to thank you, Father, that uh, whatever the day holds tomorrow, whatever the week holds, Father, it's not independent of you. We don't have to, to go looking for you. You're already here. We're in your presence. There is no doubt, no question about that. Father, we pray you'll help us to run about in that spacious place to discover more of it, to find out, God, what it means to be people of your presence, unconditionally, irreversibly, Father, those whom you set your seal upon. Father, we say thank you. And God, I'm praying for the people that we will uh, we'll meet this week. God, that you will bless them. Father, may, you, may they be just, oh, may they encounter the fullness. Father, that they may see the face of Christ in the face of a human being. Jesus. We love you, God. Can we just say, God, you, you're brilliant. We love it. We say thank you. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful God. Amen. 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 Wow. <laughs>